five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. On this week's episode of The Space Economy, I interview Robert Jacobson, an investor in the space economy and the author of the recently published book, Space is Open for Business. After listening to the podcast, you can check out Robert's book and added features he has on spaceisopenforbusiness.com. But first, a word from our sponsor, MDA. Serving the world from its Canadian home and global offices, MDA is an international space mission partner and a robotics, satellite systems, and geo-intelligence pioneer with 50 years of experience developing custom technology solutions to some of the world's biggest challenges. Today, they're leading the charge towards viable moon colonies, enhanced Earth observation, communication in a hyper-connected world, and more. To learn more, visit mda.space. That's mda.space. Welcome, Robert, to the Space Economy. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here today on the Space Economy. Now, before we dive into your book, you've characterized yourself as a venture-oriented business developer and a master of business imagination. You have degrees in music and business, and you advise several businesses. What is it you do to help people and businesses? Uh, great question. So I worked in an uh, equity investment, uh, private equity, venture capital investment uh, sector, and that was essentially making direct investments into different types of companies. And, and during that time, besides making the passive aggressive investments, many times I would be in a role of you know advising and getting an insight under the hood in terms of what was going on, sometimes what's not working or, or things that could be better optimized at one of those companies. So over that time, I've developed a consulting practice um, with, with other partners where we are working with um, different nascent, you know, not always nascent organizations, but I'll say um, small organizations um, in terms of maybe headcount, um, in terms of how to, um, you know, basically help out many. Usually it's around some early financing and some operational help. And um, yeah. So uh, when we first met, which was at the 2011 Space Foundation Symposium, uh, you were a principal at Space Angels. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think you'd been there for about a year or so. So investing in the space sector has been an interest of yours for some time. In the preface of the book, you write that a friend challenged you to write a book. How did that challenge end up being a book on the business of space? Well, I'd been thinking about writing, uh, writing more about the business of space and thinking about my own problem that I would like to solve was that could be potentially helpful for others. And that was if I were entering the space industry now, what would be a good text or a manual to help people get their handle around a, a really holistic viewpoint of the space industry and not just highlighting um, the, the higher profile individuals and, the, and, and leaders, people like you know Richard Branson, Elon Musk, or the late Paul Allen or Jeff Bezos, but who are some of the um, 
lesser known leaders in the industry and, and to sort of capitalize on some of their insights and knowledge and wisdom that they have. And that's what I did. I, I, I did my own research and I interviewed a lot of other experts in the field to try to attempt to put this into one easily digestible format that someone who's new to the industry, whether they're a student, an entrepreneur, or an investor, or an analyst, could say, okay, I see it's a lot more than just launch. I see it's a lot more than just SpaceX. It's a lot more than just NASA. And potentially, here are the ways that I could you know, participate. And so that's that's kind of the way it sort of unfolded. But yeah, it was, it was essentially a challenge. Um, and it wasn't even necessarily... Um, even in a preface before that, it wasn't necessarily a book. It was a challenge to do something. I told my friend, I was like, well, what is that? I'm not going to go jump off a bridge. He goes, no, you're going to like this. And he goes, you know, you should write a book. And, and I said, ah, okay. I've been thinking about that. And in the timing, uh, just kind of worked out. I was, um, I was headed to Israel for the international space university in it was late spring. Well, it was, it was summer. It was technically summer 2016, but I just started to think about that book the very end of the summer 2016. And the first thing I did was I put together a, a bibliography just with articles. And, and uh, there were a couple different spreadsheets I had, one with, with a bunch of articles and one with a bunch of people who I might want to talk to or include in the book. Now, you also write in the preface, uh, that the aim of the book was to develop a framework, which you've touched on a little bit. So for those outside, of, actually, I'll read the quote, to develop a framework for those outside of the industry to understand its relevance and potential to, come, to become a guide and inspirational tool for future astropreneurs to encourage more people to contribute or to become active, an active part of this ecosystem and to offer steps and directions for policymakers, investors, and bold leaders to accelerate the industry's growth. So... How did you go about developing that framework and what were some of the key points as you were developing it that you wanted to convey? Uh, well, thank you. Um, so before I wrote the book, uh, or even before I started writing the book, in, in, in May 20, I think it was May 2016, I gave a presentation at Space Tech Expo, Space Technology Expo. It's a, um, they've been having them in Europe and the US. And I think that particular one was in Pasadena, California. And the, um, the, my talk there was called, uh, it was called Steps to Space Migration or, or something like that. Something it had space, my, uh, Steps to Space Migration or Enabling Space Migration. And I had some bunch of small case studies in that presentation, and there were and there was and the audience had a lot of um, kind of recall a lot of DoD people, and maybe there was a, a general on the panel that I was on. Each person got a chance to speak. There was a panel, and at the end of at the end of my talk, I wanted to provide. I basically made this uh, pitch around. It was like 20 steps to creating a trillion dollar space economy, or, or what I said was in 2016, um, 20 steps to have a, tr a, a trillion dollar global space economy by 2030 is what I, what I said. And so I had the, that framework in mind in 2016. So as I was writing the book over, you know, end of 2016 through essentially even parts of 2020, but I'll say the end of 2019, early 2020, I, w I wanted to kind of include that in, in kind of a updated way. So I have a section called enabling a trillion dollar space economy. And that is uh, to take, 
take that some of those things. And I wanted to find a way that would speak to, um, I didn't really know exactly who would read the book. I, I wanted a wide variety of people to read it. So some of those, some of the, um, the takeaways, and there was, there was a bunch of them, but I wanted to find a way to like balance the industry. Um, here, I'm just going to read one, read one verbatim. Balancing, balance the industry playing field for startups by reducing certain advantages that favored established incumbent companies. Basically, what I was saying is going, if you're a smaller company, you're probably less advantaged than, uh, than maybe some of the larger um, traditional incumbent companies. So I offer some things like saying, you know, we might want to uh, change some of the way that lobbying happens or uh, prevent um, say military officers from immediately joining a large um, aerospace firm, uh, you know, those over the rank of major, that they maybe um, have like a, a five-year uh, period where they can't join, say, a large contractor. Um, I suggest increasing um, uh, the U.S. agency, NASA, that they're increasing their budget for startup grants and essentially just driving more um, activity to um, what can be done by the private sector, um, allow them to do it and allow, you know, government to do the things like the R&D and the things that you know, the private sector, it cannot necessarily uh, afford to do yet. You know, think, you can even think things like deep space exploration. There's not necessarily a, um, a profit motive there yet or an economic model that could drive it yet. When I um, uh, read books these days for interviews, um, I usually get it in digital format so that I can actually um, search through it. And, and I did a search for some keywords. Mm. And uh, for instance, SpaceX, and I found 139 references to SpaceX. Um, but I actually found at least one word that had more references than SpaceX. And that was the word new space. Now, New space has many definitions. How do you define new space in the book? Uh, well, it's an entrepreneur. It's, it's um, without me sort of cheating and looking at it, I think, you know, my vantage point is that new space is really entrepreneurial activity. It's, it's a type of activity related to space. It can be um, it's commercially focused. It's sometimes principally driven. So even if you're working within an agency, you can have a new space mindset, which would be how would I, um, maybe I'm leading a team, do something using entrepreneurial energy, um, things, principles from startup culture, do, you know, failing fast. Um, that's really kind of the key idea around, around doing things in new space. It's, it's trying new ways of doing things in an entrepreneurial way. It doesn't have to be exclusively a commercial profit motive, but I think if somebody is working at a, a not-for-profit, charity, um, government agency or other, they can do their activities with a new space um, awareness and mindset. All right. Now, before I get into some specific examples, I'm going to ask the big question. Uh, so, and, and I don't know how you can put it into a short answer, but uh, maybe you can. Why is okay. space open for business? Why is space open for business? I think now because there's a there's there's actually a really key point that Jeff Grayson made to me and I included in the book and Jeff Grayson is um, he's the head of agile, agile aerospace um, 
for most probably most well known for being a co-founder of Xcore Aerospace. I didn't realize. I, I'm, just gonna, I'm just going to say that you beat me to it. That was my next question, my next point. Oh, but go for it. Well, but that space was very. It was. I mean, there's there's been companies Boeing, Lockheed Martin. Um, Lots of companies, been you know, large companies involved with space. They know what pricing they're dealing with when they were building these systems. But generally, they were just dealing with government customer. But if you or I or a small organization just simply said, "Hey, I'm going to go to a Canadian Space Industry Agency. I'm going to go to NASA, and I want I want something up on." Um, the International Space Station, or I want to send a satellite up, um, a small set, it was very difficult to get any type of pricing. And SpaceX um, provided new um, transparency to the market. In Falcon 9, there's now listed prices available. And, and, and having a price is a really important thing. And I think that's almost one of the key things to saying open for business. Because if, if you don't know what the fair value exchange is, and if, and if it's just bartering, you know, maybe space is open for business, but I would say in a more limited way. And having a, a, more, a market where you have more transparency in your pricing and even predictability, now they have, you know, many different service providers that can tell you, um, say, okay, you have this amount of mass. These are the types of rockets you can go on. If you want to go in Q2 2021, this is who's flying. This is what you need to do. I think just having more visibility of information and then having ways for the, um, you know, the customer to, to, to utilize that information and do something with it. I think that's what makes space open for business. So I'm just going to read the quote because I was going to read yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, and and I do know Jeff Greeson, and I and I and I was really disappointed when Xcore, as a startup, didn't make it. But he has done many uh, good things, and he's still doing things. His the quote that you have from him is the single greatest contribution that SpaceX has made to the launch market is that launch now has a price. And when I read that, it was like, yes. You know, uh, it, 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 that that resonated with me. And and it's interesting because at one point, and, and I can't remember what year it was, SpaceX started to put their prices on their website. It wasn't just that it was in marketing material that they would send here or there, but they were public with their pricing. And other companies started to follow suit. And then, of course, the point being is that, well, if you know what it's going to cost you to send something up, Right. Then you can start building your business around your business plan around. OK, that's what it's going to cost us to put this piece of technology in space. So now we know. And, and I, that, to me, that was one of the fundamental things that I, I read uh, in the book. Now, one of the other things, and I've got the quote here somewhere that I pulled up and you were talking about NASA and its budget. Right. Um, and you were talking about. Um, how NASA's budget in 2005 was 16.1 billion, uh, and that uh, the Space Foundation had estimated that space-related activities had resulted in 180 billion added to the U.S. economy. And in particular, you said, this means that every dollar spent with NASA yielded a tenfold return. Other studies agree with NASA, uh, NASA returns between eight to $10 in economic growth per dollar it receives quite a significant uh, margin from an investment standpoint. So can you talk about that a bit? 
Yeah, I, I think what it really means is that first, and, and this is some of the critics of, of space. Well, you know, they say we have money, we should be spending money elsewhere. And and when they actually look at the, what the percentage of that amount is, it's pretty small. Um, but the money is spent here on Earth. There are you know, I'm not the only one saying this. There are no ATMs. There are no banks in space yet. And when, um, and what that means is when there is, um, when um, NASA has a contract and, you know, and, and there are contractors and subcontractors distributed around the United States, sometimes even overseas and um, other places, even North America, that the money is spent locally, you know, and that, that is kind of where this, um, this multiplier effect and this return on in, on economic investments is coming from you know the you know the people that there are people that show up every day work jobs at those contractors and subcontractors. Um, it is almost it's 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 I guess it's kind of a um, a variation of this trickle down effect, but. Just back backing up a little bit before what you're talking about a little bit like some of the risk in, in space is that space. Or now that you have a, an, um, you have a price like SpaceX provided, and one of the reasons investors shied away from this area was this opacity. They don't write; they generally don't write checks into just a, a void and, and say, "Oh, okay, you won't." So launch is, is part of the budget, but you don't really know what it costs. Okay, so space had this this kind of um, three major issues: it has political risk, technology risk, and market risk, because in some areas. There was, you know, you're dealing with new technology. Some areas you have new markets that are unexplored. Or there's not a lot of track record or history to go from. And you're, you're really having to um, sometimes grasp straws to kind of make a convincing case to your, to your investors to sort of say, okay, this is where we think the market can be because we're looking at this adjacent area on Earth. And then potential political or legal, you know, kind of, kind of, policy risk where, you know, um, where it's a highly regulated area. And I think that's, that's why the investment community for, for a while was, 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 was gun shy, but coming back to the, um, return on investment for, um, government investments in space, I think it's, it's still, um, you know, the money is invested here locally and or they're, you know, whether it's technology development or things that are just more mundane, again, it's, it's staying with the community. I think that's something that I think it's just a, an important thing to that, that we should remember. It's, that is not going into a black hole. That is actually being spelt in a very real terrestrial uh, way. Now, that return. I, I want to just continue this discussion on that yeah. return on investment for a second, because um, you know eight to ten dollars in economic growth per dollar is is significant. Uh, at least I and this was from numbers that I think that you had quoted from two thousand five. As a multiplier, is that higher than the average for government investments or lower? You know what? I actually, I, I actually, I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I, and I kept on looking for current data around that type of question. And I couldn't really find um, current numbers to back up the space stuff or, or the space related, the NASA investments or, the, or, or other, um, you know, other non-space government activity. So I don't know. And I, and I wish that this area would kind of get pursued more because every once in a while people do reference some you know space has this 
self-referencing issue where sometimes we we go back to some of the same papers and stuff because some of the literature that takes a while to get updated um, um the reason why the reason why i bring it up is because um i'm canadian uh although my audience is global uh i'm canadian and so of course i i'm tuned into uh the canadian uh ecosystem quite a bit um and I know that the multiplier for space in Canada is about a lot lower than that. So mm. it's still good, but it's a lot lower than that. So that's why I was looking at the numbers and going, wow, that's you know significant. And if I remember correctly, about a month ago or so, NASA put out its, uh, a report, independent report, that, uh, that talked about uh, the multiplier effect and how big it was. So uh, it's just something that fascinates me because from an economic perspective and when people are saying, oh, why are you spending money in space? Well, you know, you really have, you know, you can... You really have to look at the economics of it. You know, where, I, I where wonder, is that? Sorry, go ahead. No, I wonder, I wonder we could talk to Alex McDonald. <laughs> I just did. He was my last guest. And, and you know what? Um, that was the last question I had. And it didn't make the cut in the podcast because mm. the podcast was already too long. <laughs> okay. Did, did he give you he some didn't go into? I don't think he went into the actual... We didn't actually get into a discussion on the actual multiplier itself, so maybe that that'll yeah. be a discussion for another time with, with him. <laughs> yeah, he, he. I mean, he's got the right chops and insights on yeah. that. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought that was very interesting because you know, to me, when it, when it comes, you know, I hear I just got a press release this morning that said you know the two point seven trillion dollar space economy that's coming, and it's like, well, that's nice, but you know. When I talk about the space economy and what I'm trying to do with this show, um, the the podcast, and and hopefully if if I migrate it to uh, perhaps YouTube, um, is I really want to talk about the reality of, of the space economy, right? Not not the hype. And so you know when I see press releases with 2.7 trillion, it's you know well that's all nice and everything, but what's the actual market today? Well, we know that the market is somewhere around 350 billion globally uh, a year right now, and that. You know, we're going to head towards a trillion-dollar economy, a good space economy, and then eventually, if things go well, we'll we'll get even higher. But I like to get numbers that are real and as of today. So, do, so do, does one include? Let's take internet from space. Does that, you know, in all the different applications and services that might come from space-enabled assets, do you include those? And eventually, if somebody is, let's just say, in a doesn't matter where they're they're on earth and they're using an internet they're getting internet from space and developing some application that has maybe nothing to do with space they're but it's relying on that but they are relying on internet access from space do you count that as part of the space economy you know that's you know when you start creating these new sub markets or, or mini mini verticals yeah I, I i agree with you on that but i think i look at it from the perspective of we're still trying to educate the public and it's my job to uh, portray to the public what the reality is of the space economy is to their everyday lives. And it's just, it's an ongoing, uh, I, I don't know, if mission, if you will, of mine to, to, to do that, you know, to convey that sense that, you know, I don't think you really understand how important it is to your everyday life today. I mean, and I'm not talking about, you know, from 60 years ago, I'm talking, you know, majority of what's happened is in the last, you know, 40 years or so. And 
if, if we took away satellites today, do you know what the world would look like? You wouldn't recognize it, especially anybody under the age of 20. <laughs> anyway, get, getting back to the book, um, you interviewed over 100 people uh, for the book. Who surprised you with what they said? Um, well, Jeff um, Grayson was 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 definitely was definitely one of them. It was it's always uh, you know can be kind of mind blowing and insightful talking to to Jeff because as deep as he can go in engineering, he also loves talking about um, economics. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with um, one of the uh, creators of the Expanse. It was um, and for those who, Daniel Abraham. Um, it's a great show. I love it. But it's kind of funny. I think I, I don't want to see the future of The Expanse. Like, I enjoy the show. I think <laughs> I enjoy the char- I enjoy the characters of the show. And so many times people enjoy stories are all about humans and characters, that character development. So I really enjoy the characters of the show. I appreciate how they do have some um, new space and even 21st century-related technology, drones. And I love the... Um, the way people get around on the asteroid, their their version of a subway. That I forget what they call it. Whatever, it's like an inclinator sort of. It, it, it it's 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 science fiction, but it's based. The, the storyline is, is 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 actually quite good, but it's interesting because it's not that far down in the future, time wise, and in, in terms of when it takes place, and it's more. You know, it's not talking about going to other galaxies per se. Although I won't. There is a little bit of that in there in terms of yeah. one aspect, but but it, most of the action happens, you know, within you know uh, the solar system and and primarily from um, uh, the asteroid belt down to Earth or actually down to the sun, uh, and it, it's quite interesting. And I, I will point out that um, the series was going to be canceled, and that who saved it? I think it was Jeff Bezos, right? Jeff Bezos, her? exactly. He, he, was a, he was a fan. And he was like, a fan. Hey. <laughs> so, all right, so that's interesting. Yeah, now, so, so, and, so, so, and look, and for those who have not seen The Expanses, it's a fun show, but it does have some, it, it does look at the future with some dystopian aspects, which I'd prefer to kind of hope that we don't create. <laughs> you know, um, Earth is in pretty bad shape, and um, and there's kind of some... Uh, uh, tension to say the least between those who live um off planet and on planet earth um i also um i really enjoyed speaking with um a person who actually uh, ended up becoming a sponsor of the book and i much pre- appreciate it was jeff garzik jeff garzik is the um he was one of the i think he was the first he's in the he was like the number two software developer of bitcoin maybe number three and uh, very deep on blockchain and software development, very interested in satellites. He had, um, he had a, uh, an effort several years ago, and I might be messing up the names, called like Dun- Dunlavy. Dun- he, he, he early on tried several years ago to put, Bitcoin, I think, Bitcoin on a satellite. Didn't quite work out. Um, he now has a company, or uh, there's, a, I think, a for-profit and a nonprofit site called Space Chain and Space Chain Foundation. And I think they're based out of Singapore um, and they're doing some cool, cool stuff. And, and now he really is tr- trying to see what is this intersection of, of, of getting, being, using blockchain technology to enable more regular people to uh, utilize different space assets. 
Uh-oh. Now, it, it, interesting that you had mentioned uh, The Expanse because my next question uh, actually dealt with science fiction. Um, and science fiction has a place in your book as well. Um, I recently read Artemis by Andy Weir, uh, who brought us uh, The Martian, which uh, a lot of people uh, will have seen in the movie theaters. Um, <clears throat> I hope that Artemis makes it as a movie as well. By the way, uh, I don't know if it's a, if it's if it's if it would if it's going to happen, but that would be cool. Anyway, in the book, the inhabitants have created a currency called the soft landed grams, or slugs. Can you explain the importance of slugs as an example of economics, and in this particular case, it's economics of the on the moon? Yeah. So um, b- backing up, there's there's. Um, so, so in, in the, in the book in um, in Artemis, you have this, intri- you have this intriguing presence of, uh, I'll say Af- African connected um, nation states to the moon. And, and I don't know if this is what Andy was thinking about, but I had, I had been thinking about how, um, and, and, and actually um, in, in someone else, um, whose name um, I'm blanking on. He just passed away this spring and I'll come to me. I'm Q, um, Q Huang. And I might be getting his last name correct. He passed away re- uh, recently from cancer, but we were talking about how like with telecom, it was very expensive in Africa and places like Southeast Asia to, you know, put up te- regular telephone lines. But as there was a proliferation of cellular telephone networks, it was cheaper to start creating, you know, getting people for, for people to get um, telephone access through cellular phones. And those cellular phones also had eventually had, you know, text and Internet access and they became the total lifeline. And so in the in the book, in Andy's book, there's this connection with African countries that are or setting up in, in the moon. And I wonder if if it's kind of going if it potentially as access to space becomes less expensive if we might see a rapid acceleration of of countries or nation you know nation states who don't necessarily have their own dedicated space program saying gosh we can we can utilize this other infrastructure to get ourselves to the moon mars wherever and eventually as they're you know developing maybe a new currency could um, develop there, like as in, in the book where they, you know, the moon has its own um, dedicated. Um, so I, I think it's just kind of a, a practical, practical thing where it's, I don't, I don't necessarily know if these things are going to come out of, of, out of a lot of, uh, you know, government planning. I'm sure there's probably papers that are written on this and, you know, new currencies for off-world economies, but I have a sense that some things are just going to develop out of a, a practical approach, just simply saying, okay, we've got some people living here on the moon. They need to trade. They need to, um, they need to do something really practical and we can't get, you know, maybe our visa card doesn't work. We don't have a bank or we'll just create our own economy. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's the important takeaway. But I think if one looks historically back to what happened again with the cellular telephone networks and, and how then it wasn't just a phone to use to speak to people, but they were sending texts, they were sending payments. Um, cellular phones are, are, are just vital in, in these, um, uh, these places in, in Africa and other parts of the world. And um, 
I think that we might see something similar happening into uh, into other off-world economies. All right. We're going to, to leave it at that. For those that are interested, Space is Open for Business uh, by Robert Jenkinson is available just about anywhere. Uh, any of your online uh, shopping stores. Um, it's, uh, it's a fascinating read. Uh, and if you're interested in space uh, uh, as a business, uh, it's a must read. Thank you, Robert. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. Feedback is very much appreciated, and you can contact us at our new Twitter channel, at The Economy Space. We tried to get The Space Economy, but it was already taken, so it's at The Economy Space. On a programming note, with the U.S. election being held this week, we're going to do a special episode on the results and what it means for the space economy. The release of that episode, however, will be timed based on when we have the final results. And we don't know when that's going to be yet. As always, if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash spaceq.